Hi there, I'm Dave Levine and thanks for joining me on the Sports Stories podcast. We have a really special series of shows coming up for you. My special guest will be Paul Smith. Paul played cricket for Warwickshire as an all-rounder and was a key player in the side that won the unprecedented treble in 1994. Paul has experienced many highs as well as career lows and openly shares some of his thoughts and strategies. Later in his life, Paul became the first white cricketer to play for Cape Town club St Augustine's during the dismantling of the apartheid regime and has also been involved in groundbreaking projects in Los Angeles and South America. Paul has been involved in sport for many years as a player, developer of people, a visionary and more recently a commentator and author. He has many stories to tell and does not hold back. You will not find Paul to be predictable, but you will find him to be insightful, inspirational, open and to the point. We will explore how he got into cricket and the highs and lows of his career, being a fast bowler in the current cricket system, mental health and the psychology in sport and much, much more. I sincerely hope you enjoy listening to the following series of conversations with Paul and as always, please subscribe and let your friends and colleagues know if you have taken some value from it. So let's get on with the first show in the series. Good morning, Paul. It's really great to see you. Thanks for, for giving up your time uh, to spend with me today. We're going to go through a number of different uh, sort of themes and um, topics to, to talk around. I would like to just kick us off with, if you wouldn't mind, just giving me um, kind of a run through of the timeline of your your life, actually, just very quite functional, but just uh, step by step, your your journey. My journey. Mind. Born and bred in Newcastle upon Tyne. Lived there till I was 16. Best mate at school, Simon Donald, Quorn Biz Comics. He and I were <laughs> like the naughty boys in the class. Naughty, not bad. Um, uh, at 16, I left home uh, and became a professional cricketer. Um, spent the next 16 years being a professional cricket cricketer within first class cricket, uh, where I would play summer uh, summer's cricket, obviously here in the UK. And in the winter, I would target countries overseas to go and play. Um, post-career, uh, I've linked sport to education, things like the Prince's Trust here in the UK, worked in South Africa, uh, where you're trying to educate people through a sport, move people forward. Um, mm -hmm. uh, United States of America, worked with kids in gangs and homeless people. Wow. Uh, written a book, contributed to books, written many articles for magazines and newspapers, speak at functions, okay. try and keep out of trouble. Yeah. Family? Four kids. Four kids, right. 32, yeah. 27, Great. 23, 12. Wow. That's enough. There's lots to go out there. That's <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Okay, so Paul, let's start with how did you get into cricket? Um, my father uh, was a huge cricket fan an exceptional cricketer uh, but his because of the second world war he right. from 1941 to 1951 he was in the RAF so he played combined services with people like Fred Truman and uh, right. people like that when he came out in 1951 he was 30 and Leicester County Cricket Club offered him opportunity to become a professional cricketer which he did for two years but he said to me that there was no money in it at the time and he then in his second year got offered the opportunity to go back to Northumberland right. be a professional cricketer for Northumberland pro in the leagues on a Saturday and have a job so there were three salaries which were going to pay him much more than if he played at Leicester yeah. um, 
So mom and dad went back to the northeast. I was the third of their sons. My eldest brother, David, came and played cricket at Warwickshire for over a decade. My middle brother, Tony, was here for four years. Um, so from all I can ever remember as a kid was being around cricket, whether it be on cricket grounds, um, going to cricket pitches. Cricket's uh, in the family, isn't it? <laughs> it was in the blood. Yeah. Um, so that's all I ever really knew. Um, you know, if it wasn't the cricket season, at the end of the summer, it was almost like the end of the world. Yeah. Um, and I begged my dad to take me to the indoor cricket centre a few miles from our house. So at the end of September, when everyone else had put their kit away for five months, we started again. Um, so it's all I ever really knew. Um, from the age of 11, I would play cricket with guys, obviously through all the junior levels as well. But um, it was within, at the age of 13, I knew, for whatever reason, I knew I can do this. Um, How did you know? Good question, that. Uh, I think it was because I was playing against men, um, and at times I would make men look daft. Uh, I've seen it with other people, other kids do it. Um, in senior cricket, in you know, as I've got older, um, and it's exciting to see a, a youngster in amongst the men, um, churning out results. Obviously, it's a huge education. You'll come up against men who'll make you look daft. Yeah. Um, so for me, every ground that we went to was a new ground. Uh, all the grounds that I played on as a kid, I still recall them. I remember many of the games, and I, and I retain many of the friends that I played with when I was just a, a young daft lad. Right. And, and your earliest memory? Uh, earliest memory would be things like playing cricket on the beach, where even my mum would play. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, on the various beaches of Northumberland that we would go yeah. to. Uh, but I don't really recall a time. Um, I remember the, the, becoming aware of international cricket. I remember um, England being in Australia in 1975, 74-5 I think it was, yeah, yeah. where Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson absolutely obliterated uh, the English batsmen. No helmets, quick bouncy wickets, two of the quickest bowlers in the world, if not ever. Um, and I remember listening to that and it, with a transistor radio in my bed, hoping that my mum and my dad didn't come in. But my old man would be next door listening to the very same stuff in his transistor. <laughs> um, well. So I think it was almost, you know, I was lucky in the fact that mom and dad, or dad obviously, they planted a seed by familiarity of being in that sort of territory. Um, I was lucky I found something called cricket. Other people find religion, other people find another sport, other people follow a football club. It could be anything. Mm. The real problem with youngsters is where there is nothing. Right. Where they don't have something to occupy their time to keep them stimulated. Because the broader education of playing sport is you meet people from all walks of life. Yeah. And um, what, what was your, what was the, um, oh, let me put it this way, your drive and your determination and your passion, where did that come from? Was it? I don't know. It's just there. Yeah. Mm. I can, um, I don't have that, that passion and that determination and that whatever for cricket now, but I, I carry that mentality into yeah. other aspects of life. Yeah. Um, I don't know, I just, if you bat and you bowl, you, you're always in the game, and if you're not getting a bowl as a young lad, you're desperate that the captain's going to tell you to warm up. Um, um, I don't know, it's just the, just the want to compete. Hmm. And once you know, rightly, wrongly, arrogantly or not, once you know that you can compete, then yeah. you always want to be competing. Yeah. And 
who was the greatest competitor in the family? I'd say we'd all compete in our own way. Um, because I could bowl and bat, right. I had an advantage over my, t my my middle brother Tony could bat and bowl, but not like I could. Yeah. Um, and my oldest brother David was a, an opening batsman who didn't bowl. So because <laughs> of the because of the age group, we rarely yeah. would actually play together. But I would always be the, probably the most competitive. Um, probably. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It was just, um, what's say all things, you know, if you, if you, um, when you're, if you're a kid and soccer is your thing, you want to be the number nine that sticks the ball in the top corner in the 89th minute. Yeah. That's what I wanted to do in my sport. And, and if we took you back to those early stages, can, can you remember who, who might be one of the most influential people at that early stage in your career? I would say that all the guys that I played cricket with were influential because I remember them all to this day. Some of them are no longer with us, but I mean, if I go north um, and I'm in Newcastle, right. I do bump into people that played in that era. Um, and I can remember all the games that we played in, many of the conversations that took place in the changing rooms, lots of humour, lots of pubs. Um, uh, they're all influential, but obviously my father, um, was huge, as as big as influence as someone like Bob Willis or Bob Woolmer yeah. was here. Yeah, yeah. Um, because he planted the seed. Yeah. He was the one that bought the kit. He was the one that drove us to the games. Right. Yeah. Um, sometimes two games in a day. Right. Um, so yeah, and he obviously, you know, he knew he wasn't wasting his time. And if we hadn't become professional cricketers, he would have been happy in the sense that. Um, we were in love with something that he also loved. So it just happens that we all turned pro. Yeah. Quite unusual. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, what what we'll hope to do is is move on into, into further sort of podcasts and and discussions around some of the highs and lows. But it, it sounds like you know your your early start was a very successful start in cricket. It, you know, it, it followed quite a, a a smooth trajectory. Would you say? Um. Uh, is this before I became a professional cricketer? Yeah. Um, yeah, if you play games, you c you're not going to do well in every game. I think that uh, the smooth trajectory, you could maybe say, was the fact that there were enough performances over any one season that would make people sit up and take notice. Okay. So as long as you could see progress, then you could say maybe that was a smooth trajectory. But, I mean, yeah. it's a huge learning curve. Yeah. If you're a young kid, you are a young kid, whether you're playing cricket with your own age group or whether yeah. you're playing with guys. Right. Um, you're obviously naive. Uh, and if something doesn't seem just, it's almost, if it's injust, it's almost like the end of the world. Yeah. Um, whereas the older you get, the more cynical right. <laughs> you, might, you might become. Um, but yeah, it was a relatively smooth one. As I say, at the age of 13, when the people that, the three of us who were in class all the way through our education, Simon Donald, who formed his comics with his brother, as I said, yeah. they used to say to him, Simon, don't look, don't draw on your books, it'll get you nowhere. <laughs> uh, so Smith, don't look out the windows at the sports fields, it'll get you nowhere. And a girl that was always with us, Angela, um, she's made her made a career working in the rock and roll industry, um, yeah. and I always tell her to stop looking at... Um, pictures in magazines of Roger Daltrey so um, and she now theoretically manages his diary uh, so <laughs> amazing it was uh, education is so much more than than you know pencil and a piece of paper it, yeah. it's just it constantly evolves um, 
So what's the, what, what would you have said would be your greatest learning from that period that you took on into your later career? Um, never to give up. Never to give up. Never to give up. I think it's I think it's a trait that you've got to have in life. But I think that you know we were in Newcastle. Um, but some people would say in the in the north that those in London don't know where the north is. <laughs> uh, that that this country sort of ceases to exist at Watford Gap. Yeah. Um, we were in Newcastle, uh, a, a place of great history, fantastic city, fantastic architecture, great people, um, and that's what we knew. And we yeah. were spirited kids. Uh, so you know, we were up to all sorts, the same as every other kid is at that age. But I think, as I said, key was we had something. Some kids find music, and that occupies their time, and they can progress through that. Some become musicians. Some with, work within the music industry. You want to be the lead singer, sometimes you end up being the lighting technician. With me, I wanted to be a professional cricketer, and I was lucky enough to do do it. I was lucky enough at a young age to identify, I reckon I can do this. And many people I've met who are famous have said, at what stage did you realise that you could do what you've done? And most of them have said, given an age where it's young, or some even younger. Uh, but it's like all things highs and lows, disappointments, um, euphoric times, um, and sometimes you can sit back and think, Christ, I did it. Mm. Um, so what was that age when you put on it, and you, when you thought, right, this is me, this is the direction I'm going in, and I, I am going to make a career? 13. At 13. Mm. And, and who was the person that was um, instrumental in, in moving you on into the professional game? Um, Warwickshire were aware of me um, from probably around the age of 13, maybe a bit younger, right. uh, because my brother was the opening batsman here. Yeah. Um, so when I was 14, I spent six weeks here. Yeah. Uh, and if the first team were in town, I would bowl and bat with them in the nets. If the second team were in town, I would bowl and bat and then with the nets. So I had six weeks of that, six yeah. weeks of socialising with professional cricketers and local places around here, uh, then went back to school in Newcastle, come back the following summer holidays, do the same six weeks again, um, and then I couldn't wait till I was 16, to be honest. Right. As soon as I was 16, I was leaving school, and I remember walking out the gates with Simon and sort of literally looking back and having no emotions, you know, and it was no, you know, Cell Aviv, you know, yeah. I'll yeah. miss you. Yeah. It was a matter of we've been waiting for this time to get out of school because... To break free nearly into the yeah, next Yeah, well, one. we did break free. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's quite a dangerous thing. I mean, in retrospect, if you look back, 16, you're very young, but you yeah. think you're about to conquer the world yeah. and willing to challenge anything. Um, <laughs> you may make some change, um, but in other things, you know, things are stuck in cast in stone. Wow. So th that's that's your story, I guess, from sort of early stages right through to to sort of 15, 16, when the, the kind of the door opened and into the into the professional cricket world you mm. came. Mm. Great. So, Paul, um, from then on in, um, can you can you talk us through one of your early examples or stories around um, something that didn't go quite well in your in your cricketing career? Um. Injury, uh, because I was good. Yeah. If you're good, you end up playing a lot. We were less monitored than sportsmen are now. If you were good, you would get picked. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, someone would organise a fixture card with a ridiculous amount of games, first class games, second team games, one day games, three one day competitions. Wow. Yeah. Uh, obviously the more successful you are as a team, the more games you play because you don't get knocked out of cups. Um, and Warwickshire also had a team in the Birmingham League, so every Saturday Warwickshire's second team <laughs> would play in many grounds around here and or on this ground itself. Yeah. Um, and in my first year as a professional cricketer here, I was putting plaster from just below my hips to just underneath my arms and I was supposed to wear it for, um, they said six months. Um, after a matter of weeks, I lay in the bath, I thought oh, I can't have this and just literally cut, cut it off. Cut it off. Um, snapped it off and then went out, uh, naively thinking that no one would sort of see that <laughs> I was no longer dressed, you know, like the honey monster. Yeah. Um, and that was a realisation of uh, that there was more to it than just being good at cricket, you know, you, you, you needed to be fit, you needed to have sure. luck on your side. Yeah. Um, I would say that, so, but my first year here as a professional cricketer, I played quite a lot of first team games. Yeah. Um, when I was injured, obviously I didn't play, but at the end of that summer, David Brown and Bob Willis took me aside and asked me what I was doing that winter. Uh, and I'd obviously shown enough for them to want to send me on a scholarship to South Africa. Wow. Um, so from an injury where you think, you know, your world is falling apart within a matter of a week or two, two from um, officially being released from this plaster cast, uh, you know, I was on a new adventure. I was going to South Africa, apartheid South Africa, Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about. Uh, and six months in Johannesburg was a great education. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, we'll come back to the South Africa bit in, in, in a short while, but I'm, I'm just sticking with the, um, the, the plaster cast and, and I'm, I want to kind of bring you back to your, um, your approach around, you know, never giving up. And, and how did that all play out when you, when you broke, broke out of the plaster cast and what, what, how did the story play out? Um, uh, I, took, I took it off, broke it off. Yeah. Then went and joined the rest of the guys in a bar. Bear, bear in mind, I'm not old enough to go into bars. Yeah. Um, joined the rest of the guys in a bar in Birmingham. Uh, and then the next day when we came in the changing rooms over there, uh, obviously someone had told David Brown or Bob Willis or whatever, he's taken it, this plaster cast off and it was to immobilize me. So that as my body was still growing, I was playing too much cricket, so they okay. had to immobilise right. me to try and get my spine to straighten up or to do whatever they, what the plan was. Yeah. Uh, and by taking it off, that went against the grain, and it Absolutely, was going to. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that's just youthful enthusiasm um, of wanting to play sport right. and not understanding the consequences of your actions. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen people do worse, but I mean, it's pretty hard to disguise the fact that yeah. you don't have a plastic cast <laughs> around, around your chest and waist uh, like you have done for the previous few months. But there's also, you, you used to turn there going against the grain, and was that something that really, do you feel also that mentality helped you in, in your career? Going against the grain helped me in my career. Yeah. Um, it would also infuriate certain people because yeah. they only knew it one way. But yeah. I would always say that. If you have enthusiasm and you don't fear failure, if you have talent or determination, um, yeah. uh, you'd be surprised what you can make uh, make happen on a, on a sporting field or in general life. But in, in sport, it's very visual because people watch and it plays out right in front of Literally, their eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've just actually got to have the balls to not fear what um, 
what is about to take place, you need to want to be right in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, and, and implementing what's about to happen. You know, and obviously the more you play, yeah. uh, the more that you can not necessarily predict what's going to happen, but you can, you have more confidence in your ability to try and set situations up in games from which your team benefits. Right. Um, but again, uh, against the grain, uh, yeah, I suppose you do. But my job as a professional sportsman is to be unpredictable to the opponent, yeah. whether I'm batting or bowling. Um, and I knew that from young. Yeah. Um, Did you learn that, or was that, or was that something within you? It just made, it just made sense. If right. you know, if you don't know what's coming at you, if I'm bowling at you, um, that's a good position for my me to have got you in. Yeah. Uh, and when when I'm batting and you're bowling, if you don't know what I'm going to try next, yeah. uh, then that has to make you think twice. If you can just run up and if things become predictable, it becomes easier for an opponent a to predict obviously what you're likely to do. Whereas if they don't know what you're going to do next, that is to your advantage. So I'm just thinking for the people listening, how, how does that, how did that really play out for you? Can you give an example? Because I think it's a really, really crucial point in terms of professional sport. It would play out in every game. Um, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Uh, the more successful we become, the more people got it. Right. Because people actually changed the way they played to be more in line with the way that I'd always played. Um, uh, things like, for me, it's not accolades necessarily. It's conversations I had with opponents, people like Mal okay. people like Malcolm Marshall, yeah. uh, great West Indian fast bowler, came up to me and said, "Smitty boy, I never know what you're going to do next." <laughs> and and that was a big compliment. Imran Khan also said exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, that was my job. My job was not to run up and be some middle-of-the-road trundler. My job was to run up and try and blast opponents out because I could bowl quick and that's rare. Mm. Um, and from a batting perspective, my strength was my ability to hit a ball distance and I had a good eye and yeah. I was good. Um, so my job was to, didn't matter the situation of the game, my job was to go and accelerate our score yeah. because if the ball is flying all around the ground, yeah. then the opposing captain doesn't know what the hell to do next. Yeah. So. When we were successful here, Bob Woolmer wanted as many all-rounders yeah. in the team as possible because it added natural strength. Yeah. Um, it took Bob two years of being coach here yeah. to actually realise, because we were such an incredibly social group of young people, um, sometimes that would deflect how people would observe it from the side and think that we weren't professional. I, I took Willie aside after two years and said, mate, I, don't you know that I want to win just as much as you. Mm -hmm. And he said, I, I don't doubt that. And I said, in which case, don't judge me what happens between 7 p.m. at night and 9.30 the following morning, because if you'd watch me, you might think that's not very professional, but I will behave in a certain manner because my head is ready for tomorrow. And once my head is ready for tomorrow, I can't sit in a hotel room and wait for tomorrow. I've got to live my life. Um, so and that was your way of preparing yourself. That was the way I lived my life. life yeah. You know, if, if um, once I'm prepared for tomorrow, you know, I mean, as a father of four, you got responsibilities. I didn't yeah. have four kids then, so yeah. life is different. But yeah. um, 
once I'm prepared, once I know how I'm going to play it, and I know how I'll react if it goes this way or that way or whatever. Once you have overall experience, you do know how to play it. In 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 hindsight, do you think looking back, you could have or should have played differently or prepared yourself differently? Could have you been even more successful than you were? Yeah, I think everyone can be more successful. Yeah. I think everyone can prepare better. Yeah. Um, I would have say I would say look at the results. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. If the result is, uh, if you use me as an example, and there'd be many, there'd be yeah. many examples I could give you um, within this setup. If when Paul fires, it helps win games. Yeah. Then Paul has to be an asset. Uh, we have people like Brian Lara. We have people like Gladstone Small. We have people like Alan Donald. We have people. You know, we had all these players. Yeah. Um, who uh, could raise the bar? Uh, yeah. Bob Willis, as a young, as when I was a young kid, explained to Gladstone Small and myself about how to go through the gears and understand key moments in games, who yeah. the key players were likely to be, and what you had to do to get to get rid of an opponent. And Willis was obviously good enough; he could actually say, "Give me the ball, I'll show you how to do this," and 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 start to bowl in a game, get a batsman out, and say, "That's what I meant." Right, and he was good enough to be able to do that. Not every time. He, he, he didn't just say it; he could do it. Yeah, he, he could back really it back it up. He yeah. could back it up. Yeah. He was England's premier fast bowler. Yeah, um, he didn't uh, pull any punches. Um, many of the team talks that we had when we were young men um, would probably bring young people to tears now. Yeah, uh, because you go bollocking, uh, but then they would say, "Come on, you go to the pub." Uh, so you could have a real rocketing for something that's occurred, uh, and then spend the next three hours in a bar learning a lot whereas from the outside you would just seem to be a bunch of sportsmen drinking beer in a pub when in fact your education never stops just because you leave the ground um doesn't mean that you stop learning yeah. and many things that i learned were not learned on the field yeah and now can can you take us into a, a place of you know when you were really performing at your best you and the team and and how that played out and, and even bringing some of this of your philosophy around you know never giving up going against the grain. How did that play out in your successful times? Um, well, before the real success came, yeah. we'd played a lot of cricket. I played a lot of cricket right. from young. Uh, Gladstone Small played a lot of cricket from young and, and there were enough of us who were still young, despite the fact that we were in our mid-twenties by mm -hmm. that stage. Um, We'd seen a lot of disappointment. We played in teams which didn't compete. We played in teams where, in retrospect, you could maybe say there was an element of selfishness involved, and people wanted to get okay, yeah. X amount of runs on the board before they would play a shot in anger. Um, so we had a lot of experience, and then we had a guy, um, Bob Woolmer, who yeah. became our coach, who talked a completely different language, um, approached things from a very different point of view was very open to experimentation um, he was huge into affirmation uh, and we did many things that we had never done before yeah. uh, and where people in cricket had never done before not even in sport he brought in sports science which hadn't been there before or certainly hadn't been used he brought in techniques which had never been used before but ultimately cricket is a simple game do what the opponent least wants you to do yeah hit the ball where there are no fielders, um, c communicate well, 
and when you've got a ball in your hand, understand what the plot is. But key is everyone else on the field who's your teammates have also got to know what you're trying to do. Right. Because you send out signals uh, to the wicket keeper uh, and every fielder has to be watching you as you walk back to your mark because you will give a signal. It could be Shane Warne okay. used to tie a shoelace or scratch his right buttock if he was going to bowl this or he was going to bowl that. With us, it was, you know, if you can bowl quick, there's various degrees of speed um, from when you're going to run up and really let it go. That means fielders have to go finer because the, the ball will go finer because it's been bowled at greater speed. So if you're going to bowl slower balls, fielders have to come more further in front of square. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so all sorts of things, different mentalities. So the thing about Bob Woolmer who, that made a big difference to us was that lots of people look not many people see. Bob was very good at seeing, judging opponents, pointing okay. things out to us. Right. Um, and we were obviously, we weren't uh, naive ourselves, but when a guy is as good as that, it was like, uh, he was miles ahead of the pack. And that's no disrespect to the two coaches that had here prior yeah. to Bob coming, because yeah. David Brown was a massive influence on yeah. all of us, as was Bob Cotton uh, after him. Uh, why, why was Bob so good though? Where, where did he pick it up? Yeah, boyish enthusiasm right. um, and he would constantly, I mean he had, what we got from Bob Woolmer when he was our coach, Bob had learnt a lot of what he knew from a guy called Colin Cowdery who was one okay, of the yeah. most successful batsmen in the history of the sport. So right. Bob was mentored by Colin Cowdery so what we got yeah. was what Colin Cowdery's yeah. beliefs were, <laughs> yeah. so it plays, everything plays its part. So we get vast amount of knowledge and opinions and thought patterns yeah. and whatever it would be, things to not make you worry. Um, it's very hard to say, you know, what, what makes a brilliant guitarist or what makes a brilliant this or brilliant that. Yeah. Uh, a broader range of things that will sit and make you think. Yeah. So if you're being mentored and a coach is a mentor in many ways, um, he's miles ahead. But Bobby, the first day that he was with us in the old pavilion here, yeah. he said in the dining room, if I can make you 5% better people, you'll automatically become better cricketers. And I remember sitting Bro. in that meeting and thinking, you know what, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. That's but, well before his time even. That, but we it? used yeah. to think, we, you see, we would have conversations, um, we would talk for hours yeah. Uh, we practiced harder than anyone else. We pra we'd had less days off than anyone else. We would talk for hours. Certain things were not... It was accepted that you could go out and have a night out in town, but if you were selfish as a cricketer, that wasn't accepted. So as long as you could perform in the manner that we were all wanting to perform, we were young men. You know, So we lived our lives, and cricket was part of that. Okay. It was the visual side of it. Um, it was the public side of it. Um, but we were curious. To curious. see how far we could yeah. actually push it. Yeah. And and did and did Bob make you curious, or were you curious anyway? And or did he just light the fire within you? I to, think he lit the fire. Yeah. Um, and I think he came at a time where, because of the volume of cricket that's put in front of you yeah. in this country, yeah. um, it's easy to become a bit jaded. Yeah. Uh, the routine is the same. It's a bit, you know, the, the circus comes to town for four days, then goes to the next town. Well, cricket's exactly the same. Um, you know, so the venues, are, you're familiar with the venues, maybe the lack of 
excitement the first time you're yeah. going to play Trent Bridge or Lords or wherever it would be. The fact that you played at those grounds multiple times now maybe took the emphasis of yeah. whatever it is that you need. Maybe it sort of diluted that slightly. Um, uh, but our, as I said earlier, my biggest fear as a professional sportsman was to retire whatever yeah. time that was going to be yeah. without having won anything, without having played in Lords Finals, without this, without that. I was lucky at the age of 20 to play in my first Lords Final. Um, so I'd already played in one, but I hadn't won one. Okay. Um, uh, and, and at different times you see people that you know, their contemporaries, you may have played Young England with them you see that they're playing in this final or that final or they're playing in a semi-final, you got knocked out in the quarter. Um, so crystallise for me then, Paul, what, what, what was your purpose or your passion or what, what drove you when you say, you know, the, the circus coming to town, it felt like it, it was sort of just churning over and actually what kept you really going? I wanted to win trophies. Yeah. And also I think the key is we mm. were... Gladstone Small will tell you, even when we weren't successful, we were a good bunch of guys. We were a good bunch of guys to be about because we got on. We had similar, um, we were young men, we went out, we drank beer, you know, we, we, we had our fun. Because you're a sportsman, a lot of doors open that don't open for other people, um, or they open easier. Um, so you wouldn't want to lose you know, I come from the northeast of England. Yeah. My mates were all in the northeast of England. Now I was a professional cricketer playing in Birmingham, and I'd I'd been away from the northeast for some time. So these people were my teammates. They're my livelihood. Yeah. They are my well, family. Mates. Your yeah, family. They are, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you don't want to give that away, um, but it would be nice if we could find a way of winning a few trophies. And at times. The side will not perform. Um, you may feel that you're starting to hit your straps as a team, and then you lose a couple. Then it rains for a week. You can't get on the field, and before you know it, you're back yeah. to where you were two weeks before. Yeah. Um, there's so many different things that can crop up. Injuries. Uh, it could be anything. Yeah. Um, but it came down to the fact that I believed that, given the right setup, yeah, with the right mentality, we could win trophies. Yeah. And then. When you've got people like Alan Donald come to the table, run up and bowl at 100 miles an hour and do it for 10 years for us, wow. um, with a massive heart. Uh, you know, he came here as a 17-year-old kid, 18-year-old kid, could hardly speak English. Um, we looked after him, we mentored him, we took him to, you know, he hardly spoke. Uh, and I remember myself and Andy <laughs> Moles taking him to the old varsity tavern not far from here. At the end of his first day's play, at the end of the first day's play, first day that he'd spent in England, right? And I said, "Come." So, and because we'd spent time in South Africa, Andy and I knew Dutch. We could speak Dutch, pretty broken Dutch. Uh, but the Enough fact to that we could, with them, yeah. well, he could hardly, <laughs> Alan could hardly speak English. Uh, so between the between the three of us, we could we could we found a way of communicating, and it was quite clear from what we'd seen in his first morning here that this kid was rocket hot. Um, and you know we needed to look after him mm -hmm. and he was a good kid so we took him to the old varsity tavern and introduced him to one of six there were six girls there and they were all sisters <laughs> uh, uh, and we introduced Alan a very shy Alan to Tina who was one of the six sisters um, and they became an item and they're still married to this day wow <laughs> um, story probably the only one <laughs> uh, 
so it was you know we were a good bunch of guys and we spent a lot of time together socially and I think our combined frustrations um, played a big part in driving it all forward. You, you seem to in those in those sort of high high times of your career um, also kind of put your arm around a few people and mentor them and bring them along. Where did that come from? Or what you know? I think it's important. Um, uh, is it like two little boys had two little toys, each had a wooden horse. Um, I think that if you're in it together, you're in it together, and there'll right. be different times where you need to put your arm around someone. Uh, it never stops. It never stops. It's like being a father. You just happen to be a young man yourself. Um, if I think about the youngsters who came soon after us, but we'd already played a lot of cricket by that stage. You like to Graham Welsh, who we spoke about earlier, who's now a coach here, Ashley Giles, who came from Surrey. Yeah. So I left on spinner. These were young guys, first time away from home. Yeah. Um and what we wanted them to do is to bed into a situation, into a place, a changing room, so they could sit in the corner, play a part, laugh with us, yeah. uh, not feel intimidated. Because at some stage it was obvious these guys were going to come into the first team fold. Yeah. It might take two years, it might take three, it might take three months, who knows. But what you want them to do is to be, to be relaxed around the, the main pot of players, so that when they do come in, they're, they're not as intimidated. Right, yeah, yeah. But that isn't what we got when we were kids, because we walked in and it was senior players and junior players, and know you know your place, know when to shut your mouth, when okay. to do this, stand up to make a point, and someone would just look at you, and you would sit down yeah. without making your point and hide behind your cricket case. Um, those were. So you learn from those negative kind of not so you good from everything from those not so good. And, and even if I'm describing negative scenes, I would yeah, never yeah. describe the people yeah. who were senior in a negative manner because it was just the way it was. Awesome. When yeah, I came yeah, here, yeah. you still had uh, the professionals in the amateurs changing rooms. The, the professional changing room was the first team dressing room and the amateur changing room was the second wow. team changing room <laughs> and there was a dividing door and often there would be nine players in one dressing room and two in the other and there would be a team talk going on in the main changing room and they'd forgotten that the opening batsman and the opening bowler were in the changing room next door because that was the politics of the club. So, you know, we had to go through all that, uh, and it's in retrospect, it's funny. Um, sometimes it was nice to have a dividing door between the between the first team and second team changing room. But in reality, if you're going to be open about it and everyone observes what's going on and understands atmosphere and what is a good atmosphere, what's a dead atmosphere, what's a killer atmosphere, you can't have closed doors. It's an open book. Mm. Um, and I, and you're touching on there for me that you know the power of. Of the collective team and, and actually how important that was and also creating the right culture the right environment the right atmosphere mm. you know which I, I find really uh, you know a crucial aspect of cricket really where it's it's quite an individualized game but yet the power of the team was also so important but that's you. A, you know it's no different in business if you or if you work in a warehouse yeah. you've got to have a team you know everyone will be doing a different you know, some are on the back of the yeah. wagon, some are putting the boxes on the back of the wagon. Ultimately, you've got a set amount of time in order to get the result, to get the wagon out the door. And if people communicate right and do their job yeah. properly, it will happen quicker. Um, it could, in any aspect of life, you know, good teamwork on what is good teamwork, working out what will work, what will slow things yeah, down, yeah. what will be a pain. It is no different. Sport is exactly the same. Communicate, and we communicated so much better. Um, the more confident we became because we became confident because we could see that people were coming out of their shells. 
Right. Personally, I never had yeah. a problem coming out of my shell because I always had quite strong beliefs. Uh, sometimes you get shouted down and told you're naive, and in retrospect, you probably were. But it's still important to have an opinion. Have a view, yeah, yeah. Because um, uh, if you say, if you believe something and you say it, and someone proves to you right there and then that you're actually wrong, then you've actually waste, you've saved a lot of time. Yeah. Because some people go through yeah. life thinking the very same thing that's never challenged. Yeah. But they don't have the balls to actually say it. They yeah. just believe it. Yeah. And what was your role then within within the team? Do you, you know what position did you take to make it laugh? Right. My job, as I said, my, <laughs> it was. You know, I mean, if, yeah. if if you were to get the whole bunch of us together, which you know we pretty much did in August last year. Right. Um. We laugh a lot because. We don't even have to talk about things. We just have to look at each other, and we know what the other person's thinking. Right. Uh, <laughs> Unspoken language, <there>. exactly. <laughs> but I mean, that's part of the art, yeah. you know. Um, I think I brought Viz humour into our changing room. So my job was to make it laugh. I knew I was good with bat and ball. I knew I could change yeah. a game. I knew I wasn't as consistent as certain people would want me to be. In a warped sort of way, that sort of appealed to my sense of humour yeah. because I knew what games were coming up and I knew how much I wanted to do well in those games, not just for myself, but because we had to progress this thing we were involved in. Um, so my job was multiple. Uh, sometimes, well, yeah, you bring humour to the dressing room, even if it's a matter of having a laugh at the coach's expense. And over time, Woolly uh, would see the humour he would be able to laugh at himself, whereas maybe when he first came, he had a job to do and he didn't laugh at himself too much. Uh, but he came out of his shell as a man rather than just a mentor. Right. So it was strip everything back, bring to the table what you can at times in a tiring environment, which it is because you play a lot. There's a lot of physical and mental pressure. Yeah. Um, and a lot of travel, a lot of sleeping in strange beds. Yeah. You can you can sleep in four different beds in any one week, and they're just in hotels. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things going on. Yeah. Uh, it's a matter of what will get you through. Yeah. You know, and everyone would play their part in that. But humour, humour. I'd always say humour. My job is to make people laugh, because it breaks the ice. Yeah. And, and if it's a stressful situation, the easiest way to get people to relax is to not crack a joke. But do something that will make people laugh, yeah. and you know these people, so you know what they're going to laugh at. Yeah, and the and therefore also the importance of humour in the team dynamic for a performing All the time. team. Yeah, yeah. We laugh, you know, laugh whilst you're learning. Support what an amazing story, um, an amazing uh, career through cricket. Uh, what would have been your um, what was your highlight? What was the, the the one moment which you would recall as the highest part? Um, uh, two things. One was Bob Willis telling me that I was wanted here because he was a hero of mine. Mm. Um, uh, and, and from a pivotal point of view, yeah. the highlight of doing a treble, a double, yeah. I don't know, we won an awful lot of competitions in a shortish period of time. I would say that was a highlight in terms of, it was almost like, I told you so, right? but it was also a crucial point <laughs> because it was only going to go downhill from there and we lost Bob, our coach. Yeah. And uh, so you can be right at the top one minute and the next minute something happens wow, yeah. and yeah. You, can, you can see that it's going to go down. And th there are obviously examples in other sports. 
Manchester United at this yeah. moment in time. Yeah. Liverpool haven't won a competition of the championship for 20 odd years or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. This will be this year, hopefully for them. Uh, so you never, you know, the 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 diff we're only passing through life anyway, and sport it's even shorter. Yeah. Um, so becoming a professional cricketer, getting the having the conversation with Bob Willis, then a decade and a half later we've achieved all this success. But then in reality, part of me is thinking, you know what? Because of I saw how people reacted to that success, people who stick their oar in because they want to be part of it, and despite the fact they played no part in it, yeah, and um, lots of that, lot I was surprised sometimes a lot for every pat in the back you get, you get a dirty look from someone because right. they don't support your team. Uh, there'd be lots of things that went on that made me question whether I'd actually want to be part of this anymore, uh, and several of us thought like that. Uh, and in my case, within a year or so, I thought, you know what, I don't want this anymore. And I had some serious conversations with people right. who say, what are you doing? Yeah. I don't want it anymore. Right. But that's where, that's almost like you reach a stage in a relationship where you know it's not working anymore and someone has to make a decision. Otherwise, you just sit through this for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm hearing now, you know, the, the, the highs and the lows of being a, a professional sports person mm -hmm. and, and, you know, going through that career. What advice would you give to somebody wanting to come into this this world, given your experiences of those highs and those lows and those conversations of saying, you know, I can't be doing with this anymore, but yet you're also the, the euphoria of, of, of the highs that you get? Is what within professional sport? Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody wanting to um, engage in this world and want to have the career that you had or go on that journey? I would say you have to live it, breathe it, um, never give up. Um, hopefully, I think the key is, as a young person, I think what's the same throughout all of life, but particularly at a vulnerable age, yeah. if you can have, we were lucky because we had mom and dad, uh, yeah. and they were, you know, they would, uh, I would class myself as being very lucky to have the mom and dad that I had. Yeah. So we were looked after well, we never wanted for anything, we weren't spoiled, we weren't rich, but what we had were two parents that were well behind us and they saw what we wanted to do and they were willing to push us in the right directions, protect us, um, always make sure that we were at where we were supposed to be from a sporting point of view. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and and without that, it didn't matter what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to be a professional cricketer. If mom and dad hadn't been as good at what they did as what they were, right, it would never have happened anyway. Yeah. So I think the, the you have to break it down to. What are the support? You know, if I'm a, a ten year old Paul Smith in 2020 and I want to go out there and play cricket for Warwickshire yeah, when I leave yeah, school, lovely, yeah. um, you have to want to play an awful lot. Right. Uh, understand that the more balls that you hit, the more you'll understand. Yeah. Uh, the positions that you've got to be in in order to hit the ball well, you've got to bowl a lot of balls. Um, you have to have a massive passion. Right. Uh, and managing the environment as well, because like, you know I'm, I'm kind of nearly comparing the, uh, the the sporting landscape and the environment when you were growing up through the sport, but also sort of today. You know, what what advice might you give a young ten year old coming into this world? Not not around the technical and the tactical aspects of the game, but actually how how might they manage themselves? Um, never lose focus. Okay. Yeah. Always turn up on time. Yeah. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Okay. Lovely. Um, 
I think the key is a lot of people are, are intimidated by what's in front of them. Um, and if people are intimidated, they're not. I always say to young people, talk to me. What, you know, what is, talk to me. Um, oh, anything and everything. Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter whatever's being discussed. If you talk about sport, yeah. um, uh, people go way too technical. I yeah. mean, the amount of times I've seen youngsters, uh, they may be struggling uh, when they're batting and a coach is talking to them about how they're holding the bat or yeah. their back lift or this, that and the other. And I've said, are you sure you're watching the ball from the bowler's hand all the way down the wicket to when you hit it? And you can't get an answer. And I said, well, you know what, try doing that and the rest may fall into place. And quite often that is the only thing that they're not doing. They're not watching the ball hard enough. So a real simple message. Well, everything is simple. You know, when I, I say to bowlers, when you run up and bowl, do you know where you want that ball to bounce on that wicket? And the amount of times where you, there's, the delay is too long for them to say uh, yes, because you know that the guy, you say, yeah, I do know where I'm looking to bowl it. Um, but I couldn't hit a, a beach towel never <laughs> today, you yeah. know, never mind a handkerchief. Yeah. Uh, and you just have to accept the fact that there will be days I don't, I don't care who you are, you know, you run up, you, it's all between your ears, but yeah. you can't execute the things you know that you can. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's just the nature of, if, if sport was just about being good, then it would be a waste of time the opponents turning up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the great thing about sport, it's a great leveller, uh, it'll take you to places when you get it right. That, um, you either thought, told you so, you knew it was there. Gladstone Small would always say, it comes and it goes and it hides in strange places, but class will always come to the surface. Right, yeah. Um, and and <laughs> we all have that. class in our own way. Um, you know, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way. You know, there are certain things that you can do quite naturally. I had these conversations with my 12-year-old daughter. There are certain things that yeah. she does quite naturally and excels at where her mates they're nowhere near as good as that, whereas they may have advantages over my daughter and my daughter will catch up in time. Okay, lovely. Yeah. So the idea is don't lose heart just because you get you don't do so well in a test today. Because um, I remember getting tests where I got two out of a hundred, but yeah. I didn't care because yeah. I was going to be a professional cricketer. Yeah. So I was a teacher's nightmare because I didn't care. I might be in attendance and I won't cause you any problems, but you're probably better off concentrating on the kids who want to get an A+, because I don't care. Mm. You know, my, my, all my focus, all my energies were in sport. And if anything had happened, I had broken my ankle and it had never healed correctly. Yeah. And I hadn't been able to play sport many times since. I thought, Christ, I wonder what I would have done. I have a fair idea, but it wouldn't have been the very thing I'd set out to do. What a strong, amazing message. Yeah. Well, and, and I think for me, like, it comes back to also that never give up. You know, I'm also hearing here that actually, even in your cricketing and your sporting career, there were times where things didn't go right. But many. You, but you have to find a way through that, and you continued knowing that it would come at some stage. For all the yeah. for all the times you get it right, and every photograph, I, I've said to people, for every photograph you may see of me or us, and we're lifting a trophy, that's at the end of a day's play. But have you any idea how many ends of days plays that we, that we were involved in where we didn't lift a trophy? Yeah. It was just damn hard work. It wasn't glamorous work. You know, you may, you may finish a game here at, at six o'clock on a, on a Wednesday afternoon and have to drive to Southampton yeah, yeah. and get out with rigor mortis because, you know, <laughs> your body's falling apart because it's August and, you, and you've played nonstop. Um, 
Yeah. You can't give up. Uh, I don't care what, what aspect of life you there be. You, you will have peaks, troughs. There'll be times where you're really enthusiastic. I make myself get out of bed at six o'clock every morning because if I don't, I know there may be a missed opportunity there. Uh, so I would just put a laptop on and I communicate with people all around the world. Yeah. Because from a conversation or an email that I sent 12 months ago or had 12 months yeah. ago, you find that bit by bit by bit a seed has been planted and not everyone obviously, but it's the only way you move forward. Dennis Amos used to bat for hours in the next year because he knew he had to bat for hours in order to be hitting that ball well, to be moving well, to go on to score his hundred first class hundred. Yeah. Nothing, you know, you have to bowl balls in order to have confidence in what you're doing when you've got the ball in your hand. Mm. More modern players spend more time in gyms, so they look fitter, but they appear to break down more. Right, yeah. You know, and it's not a criticism of modern day sportsmen, it's more the reality of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you want to, you know, I spent a lot of time in, uh, in gyms in my mid-twenties because I had terrible injuries, a terrible injury to my left knee and they had to reconstruct it twice. So I was at Lillishaw Sports Rehabilitation Center from eight o'clock in the morning every yeah. day um, till 5.30 in the evening. Uh, and when I went there, I couldn't walk unless I used a, a walking stick. Um, and I wasn't allowed to do anything other than cycle or tread water in a pool. Hmm. Uh, I mean, that is quite challenging because in your mid-twenties, knowing what you can achieve, your body is is broken mm. and your mentality is not quite aligned with your body well, you're, not as yeah, you're not as confident yeah, in, sure. in what lies ahead in the future um yeah. you know to come back from serious injuries is hard work because it's not glamorous there's no one watching you there's no one encouraging you. they put loud music on and they play trendy music and they put slogans on walls but in reality you're the one who's got to get out of bed you're yeah. the one who has to leave yeah. to the car you're the one who's got to spend the next six hours sweating in front of no one yeah that's just the cold reality yeah. you know it's a bit like if you want to, you know, if you want to walk out of university with a master's, you you're going to have to work damn you're hard. Put the work in. Yeah. Nothing comes easy, and that and I think that is a message that goes through the whole world. And those that don't understand uh, need to wake up. How, how how do we encourage those that don't don't understand that? We think? communicate with them. Yeah. I mean, that, I, the reason that I link sports to education uh, because I know that what sport teachers people uh and if you if you like for instance the princess trust asked me to get involved and in, i mean i i wrote white papers of delivery on how i thought you could link coursework college coursework throw in a bit of sport in my case cricket how you could get the two to complement each other to enthuse people who'd either had problems with the police had been in and out of education their home lives might be through no fault of their own there may be no home life i mean many kids i work with you know they 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 go home from school and no one is at home yeah yeah um yeah uh and and, and it's a hard world we live in sometimes mom and dad both work and don't get home till late sometimes yeah. Yeah. there is no mom and dad yeah uh yeah. particularly overseas i saw in a huge amount of that yeah. yeah but the thing with the thing with linking sport to education is what it does it teaches the cricket side of it teaches is the fact that when you teach people who don't know how to play cricket yeah. how to play it you're not looking you're doing it so that they have fun yeah 
Yeah. It teaches improves their maths. It, it teaches that improves their communication, yeah. working in pairs. It under, it teaches people how to understand team yeah. strategy. But the key for me is it teaches very visually you can do everything right and still not get the result. Yeah. And that's yeah. what they don't know yet because they haven't got enough experience in life of doing all the hard work and still not getting the result because as adults, we are supposed to be the people that turn up the next day and try and push for that result. But, well, Pam, I'm going to stop you on that one because I, I want us to come back and dig into some of your other work that you've done around um, the Princess Trust and other sort of similar projects to that, which I, I think is an absolutely crucial um, part of society now in terms of how, how sport and or cricket can really make a difference in developing individuals, communities and so on. So I'd like to come back to that, if I may. Um, but I'd also like to come back in, in our, our sort of future conversations to really pick up on the other great work you've done throughout your career and life. Um, and I'm, I'm going to probably use the theme of um, never giving up because from what I understand from you, you've never given up throughout the highs and lows of your career. Um, but I think there's also so much more following your cricketing career that, um, that you've put your energy into. So um, I'd just like to thank you at this stage for, for sharing your journey. Um, and you know what we'd like to do is pick up, as I say, on some of the other projects around what you've done overseas uh, in education and some of the, the authoring and society type work that you're doing at the moment. Cool. So, Paul, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. No problem. So there you have it, a great insight into Paul Smith and how he got into cricket and some of his early experiences. A few questions I'd like to pose. Paul mentioned the part his family played in the early part of his life. And career. What role and impact do you have on those around you in terms of their involvement in sport? He also mentioned he made people laugh to relieve the pressure on himself and others. Who plays that part in your life and in your sporting environment? Now we'll come back to Paul in further shows within the series. We'll speak to him about some of the great work he has done, some of the highs and lows within his career and also his views on fast bowling. So from me, Dave Levine, thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe, check in with us on social media channels and we look forward to having you with us again soon.